Hello everyone, welcome to the episode of Solid Saturday. Our today's guest, Tim Gray, is the founder and managing director of Profit Systems. He designed a software solution suit that has saved his clients more than $100 million and returned an ROI of over 450%. He is a thought leader in the field of supply chain and has earned a reputation throughout the APAC region for his pragmatic, hands-on, results-driven approach. His career has seen him work in a range of manufacturing industries, and he also is an active consultant across this field. So our today's episode is mainly going to be focused on manufacturing industries and the supply chain, which is like an area of expertise for our today's guest. So I can't wait to hear more about it. Uh, let's, so let's just welcome him and hear more about his career journey. How did he find his area of interest and managing to lead that? Hey, hi team. Very happy to have you on the show and discuss more about your area of expertise. Thank you so much for all your time being so Pleasure. Lucky. Yeah. So thank you. So much. Yeah. Uh, it's all my pleasure. And uh, to start with, which we have like, you know, a beginning segment of passion or the interest. So how did you find your area of interest, like, you know, interest in this particular field, which is manufacturing industries and supply chain? And what motivates you to be in this field on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, thank, thanks for asking, Vishali. Um, I used to work as a process improvement engineer, and I really enjoyed making factories work faster and better and helping people uh, just improve the general flow. When you, when you improve the performance of machines, in mm-hmm. the factory, you make people's lives better because it's horrible being in a machine that's always broken down. And But I, I, uh, I also found that it didn't matter how good we got at running the machines, uh, if you didn't have the right materials or if you didn't have the right, um, uh, the right job up, up next, then mm-hmm. irrespective of how well we could have it running, you could stop the machines and the performance would fall and you'd have customers that were unsatisfied. So I started looking quite um, critically at supply chain and what we could do to fix it. And, and what I found over time was you can have an enormous leverage. It takes a long, long time to get machines running like Formula One cars. Um, and you can undo that immediately if you, if you don't have the right material or if your customer rings up and needs something urgently, you're not prepared for it. So, so that got me really excited about, well, maybe we can actually improve the performance of the factories and everyone's life in those factories if we can help them be able to satisfy their customers more immediately. So okay. that's how I went into it. Yeah, so it is more or like you found that gap and you know, where you would like to work as an expert in that particular part. Yeah, indeed. So that's a great actually about the passion or the area of interest. Uh, it's very few people, I guess, that found their that value. What would be the value of that particular area of expertise within the market? So thank you so much for sharing. And uh, moving towards our next segment, which is uh, questions from the audience. And I have shortlisted a couple of questions for you. The first question that we have is, would you like to share your insights on how to determine approved vendors or suppliers or manufacturers and how they would measure quality? There's, there's a lot of components to that to unpack. It's a really interesting question. And I, I think today in the way that COVID has affected the world, we've seen the, the tyranny of distance and the tyranny of international borders. So one of the things that is becoming really important, um, we've already seen a trend in America of uh, almost a renaissance in manufacturing and 
and businesses, even if they weren't the cheapest supplier, if they were local, there was a preference to buy American or in Australia, a preference to buy Australian, a, a little preference. You wouldn't pay a lot more, but, but a bit more. And now since COVID, we're starting to see it can be incredibly difficult to import something from China or from, from Europe um, just because it's hard to get a ship, it's hard to get a container and so on. And so what we're seeing is um, the businesses that are surviving and thriving in, in, in the uh, pandemic world have not just chased cost. They've, firstly, they've had a number of suppliers so that they can mitigate risk. Secondly, they have responsive, they've created relationships. They haven't just screwed the, the suppliers down on price but they've they've developed a relationship where they communicate with suppliers to kind of figure out how can we work better how can we if we need a cheaper price from you what can we do so that you can supply it cheaper not just expect you to not make profit but can we forecast better can we give you longer lead times can we you know reserve capacity from you and tell you exactly what we need at closer time and so this is starting to become a real really critical recipe where the, the world in globalisation, everyone went out to, to get on the internet and buy the cheapest price. Now what we're seeing is the cost to serve is dramatically impacted. If, you, if your product doesn't turn up, you can't give it to your customer. If, you're, uh, if your raw materials don't show up on time or in the quantity or the quality that you expected, you can stop your factory uh, and, uh, and upset your customer and be working on weekends to make it up an emergency freight and so on. So the cost to serve has become far more important than the cost to purchase. And that's a transition where it's been really, really globalisation encouraged purchasing at the lowest price and now we're starting to see, hang on, that's not really good for everyone. Uh -huh. um, it, it, we, we must have alternative suppliers and some of the suppliers you have to nurture. So we're starting to see more respect in the supply chain and, and, and an awareness of a, uh, of a fully qualified cost to serve rather than just the cost to buy. Uh -huh. Wow, so this is completely new to me. But um, when you are mentioning, like, you know, are there like when it comes to manufacturing industries, like vendor suppliers, how much the cross boundary restrictions comes into the picture, actually? I were mentioning something about that, right? Yeah, look, it, it can be a real problem for it depends on the region and where you're buying from. But if you're buying from somebody locally, then this is not an issue. If you're buying from somebody where you have tariffs or, or checkpoints or or there are issues around what you can can uh, freight with, and that becomes a major, major issue. So again, there's a real, I don't know if you've seen this in, in the States, I haven't been there since COVID started, but but we started seeing a real, um, a, a, almost a, a village-like uh, um, kind of narrative and response from people uh, yeah. that while why you're suffering from COVID and everyone else around you, and there's this real kind of desire to, to work more locally. Mm -hmm. And that just evaporates all of those other issues like cross-border challenges. So, you know, if you're talking high-volume commodity products, you may have to go all around the world to get the best price, but you still have to be able to supply it. And, and that's just a, a pain for the procurement and logistics people. Mm -hmm. Thankfully, most freight forwarders will help you with those kind of challenges, but it, it, it must be mitigated and you must, if you're, if you're trying to establish a deep supply chain for, for high-volume businesses, you must have those costs and those kind of barrier understandings well well understood before you tie yourself in a contract where you could be in strife. Yep, yep. So it is a lot more factors goes under that. So thank you so much for sharing. And uh, one more question that we have under that segment, uh, which is, is there a fixed of SKUs uh, that a person can manage directly or indirectly? How to leverage the conflicting manufacturing or planning or financial objectives? 
Yeah, I, that, that's a great question. A lot of our software helps deal with that. I, from my experience, if you've got under 100 SKUs, um, a, an individual can can typically handle it with an ERP system like a SAP or Oracle and, and mm-hmm. typically they'll also use Excel to help them. Um, if you if you have 100,000, you're going to need tools and even, even two or 3,000. For me, the, the defining point is when we start working with customers, we we do opportunity assessments and we look for where we can help them deliver the most value because our software and our, our services cost money. Mm-hmm. So we want to make sure we save more than we cost. And one of the things we often look at is if we had a more systematized approach to your stock management and we allowed you to manage by exception because the tools will do most of the work, it frees your time to focus on where there's deeper deeper decisions to be made. So, yeah, I, I think a good number is, you know, 100 is quite easy-ish, but, you know, you might have 50 warehouses, in which case 100 becomes, we call them skulls, skew locations now is across 50. You've now got 5,000. That's too much to do without tools. Mm-hmm. Because you're just you're going to have stock that's getting aged. You're going to have stock that's that's getting dust on it, um, or is uh, is out of its shelf life. It absolutely depends on the products that you make. You know, if you're dealing with spare parts for antique or vintage cars, then they're going to sit in storage, and you're going to have a long shelf life, and you possibly don't need as many systems as if you've got um, a milk, fresh milk that's got a shelf life of three days. So. It's a complex question and there's a lot of depth to it as well, but a general rule of thumb for me is, yeah, 100, you can do an Excel by a person if you really, if there's a lot of value in it or a lot of age implications mm-hmm. of getting stock levels wrong, you might want to look at having tools or, or we can help you with, you know, happily share our, our IP and our, our thought process around how to set up your Excel or there'll come a time when you need tools because Excel is just too error prone, but... Um, Mm-hmm. So you uh, use a lot of Excel, you're saying, like Excel when? We, we used to. In fact, that's how I started Profit Systems. I, I used to just do improvement consulting where we'd go in and we'd find where the biggest opportunities are in, in businesses we're working with and then help them quickly get tactics and, and strategies and, and deliverables around how we, how we deliver that value. Mm-hmm. And I kept finding that we'd put in Excel and the reason why the business systems couldn't give you those answers are always the opportunity to see where people can't see them. So they're just out of your, your line of sight. Mm-hmm. And they're out of your line of sight because the business systems can't see them. So we'd have to put in a system, we'd use Excel. But when we came back in three months or six months time, we'd find formulas had become corrupt, somebody had moved on and they hadn't trained the next person. And, mm-hmm. and it just wasn't very robust. So actually we started building a profit suite around about 2001 mm-hmm. um, and have been building it ever since. So this is a much more rigorous and robust approach than Excel. But Excel is still a brilliant prototyping tool. So I use it in my consulting, but I don't use it to leave it with customers because it's mm-hmm. just not robust enough. Yeah, but that's everyone, def- everyone likes it because it's flexible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely really good to know and hope that answers the audience questions. Uh, next segment that we have is a fun segment where I'm going to give you three keywords which are more or associated with your profile and yep. career. And you have to tell me kind of a replacement keyword or the abstract or the short definition for that. So are okay. you ready? <laughs> no, okay. I think so. Yeah. So the first uh, keyword that we have is manufacturing. Complex and um, exciting. Oh, okay. Uh, second keyword is profit. Profit uh, as, as spelled by, um, by my company, 
uh, exciting, value delivering, um, always running at a fast pace. Oh, that's great. And the third keyword is thought leader. Thought leader is um, aware and, and always listening and always watching, looking for what's next and what people need to help them on the journey. Oh, wow. That is a great one. And thank you so much for sharing and being impromptu in this section. Uh, moving towards our next segment, which is more or about exploring your career work and volunteering. You have such a huge experience, actually, work experience. And also you are a founder of your own company, Profit Systems. Yep. In this particular segment, I have, I have tried to come across your, like, you know, volunteering thing, actually, through your profile. So I... I'm going to focus more on that part in this particular yeah, statement. Sure. So the question that we have is, uh, would you like to share more about your volunteering experience being founder, help Jasper Walk and president of the board of management volunteer? Uh, like, you know, what are the goals or are you planning to achieve through it? How big is the community and how can someone join it and volunteer and what it works like? For? Okay, great. Um, so uh, just quickly, Health Jasper Walk, Jasper has severe cerebral palsy and just at the time when stem cell treatments were becoming available, as Jasper was, was growing into a teenager, it was clear uh, he would not be able to walk without serious intervention treatments. And stem cell treatments were starting to tackle the, uh, the brain barrier um, area and work on the, on the uh, central cortex where, where the um, where central for... Uh, for allowing just to be able to walk uh, unassisted was uh, a, a real potential, but we needed to raise at that time, we needed to raise about $110,000. So um, I started a website and we started some pretty crazy endeavors. I'm not built for running, but we started running okay. ultra marathons and uh, you know, 110 kilometers because we need to raise $110,000 and so on. And so we uh, we were successful in raising a, a lot of money to help Jasper and, and, uh, and he's had a number of treatments. So it's been, very, um, very inspiring and very humbling, actually, to, um, to have so many people um, yeah, uh, donate so much. So oh, wow. you can see how emotional about it. Um, the other uh, exposure I had to, to volunteer work was working in the board of management for uh, a, an organisation called Lifeline. Lifeline are, are the largest um, body in, in Australia. I believe they're international as well. Uh -huh. um, where they help uh, people in crisis counselling, so people that are feeling suicidal. Um, government um, simply don't have the resources and the infrastructure to provide support. Mm -hmm. And I was fascinated by the work these people do and also found it was really, really interesting. The role that I played was I joined the board because I was invited to, um, and I was an interesting fit because most of the people that go into the board, they had not come from business, they've been counsellors and had very wonderful healing ways about them and couldn't get past the people who donated money um, and they just felt that they should suck it up and just keep keep uh, that their people providing crisis counselling 24 hours a day and you know you might be 3 a.m. 3 people are taking calls to to help people down and and their view was every cent that that is donated has to go to reach the end customer Mm -hmm. And me coming from a business background, I had a slightly different view. Interestingly, I was like, we have to protect the people that are counselling because they can't, if they're sitting in 40-degree heat in a cabin because we haven't spent air conditioning for them or given them a cup of coffee or something, that's unrealistic. I, I, don't, I could not be empathic and 
um, and healing and caring and so on if I'm incredibly uncomfortable and tired. And, and so uh, I was interesting that my role on the board ended up being, I became chairman of the board for a while. To change that, that view of as a board, we're not just counsellors counselling everybody and trying to save everyone else. We've got to make sure our resources are, are renewed and supported and that way they can continue to provide incredible service. Um, uh-huh. There came a point where actually I, I, the organisation outgrew me and I outgrew them because I was too too abrupt, but it was a really wonderful time for both for my experience for them and, and uh, it, it was the right time. And I'd urge anybody that is interested in, in helping back, think about the skills that you've got and don't just assume that... Um, that they won't be interested in you because there's, particularly as volunteer organisations, there's so much demand. There's so many different worthy charities that it's incredibly hard to get funds. It's incredibly hard to get people and attention. Um, and they, they need help, even if your skills are not mainstream. Uh-huh. Uh, they'll normally, it, it, it's incredible what you can do, even if you're not a, yeah, you know, even if the, what they're delivering is not your core skill, like you can probably still help. Mm-hmm. That's great, actually. Both are really great initiatives, and I would encourage students and the professionals as well to, you know, connect with you and learn more about those volunteering opportunities, because so, volunteering is always great to have in your profile. And uh, even though you see, like, you know, Teams profile is a lot more in the expert in the manufacturing and uh, supply chain. Um, he does a lot of volunteering as well. So it is moreover inspirational to see how people manage to have that balance between both the professional side as well as the volunteering side alongside. So thank you so much, Tim, for sharing the, both the initiatives and insights about it. Thank you. Moving towards our next segment, which is kind of a closure segment of this particular show, mm-hmm. is leadership. So no doubt that you are truly leading your area of expertise manufacturing and supply chain what is your leadership style and any specific leader that you always follow or admire and why thank you um my leadership style is to be very open and frank with my team i have a um a small and highly trusted team highly motivated highly trusted i i always like to lead by example Mm -hmm. i think if you don't have integrity it's folly to expect your staff to Um, to act in, in any other way. They're going to mirror what you do. So like children will, um, it's more important what you do than what you say. Um, and so that's probably the first and most important thing. I, I encourage feedback. I don't always like it, but, mm-hmm. uh, but we can't learn if we don't, if we don't get frank and, and open discussions. So they're probably the two most important things. We have an interesting, another kind of dimension because we're always working with clients and we're helping them in a change management project. Not always called that, but if we, when we're putting in systems or when we're changing the way that they're, they're working, if we don't change the, the behaviours, then yeah. you're not going to change the outcome for the business. If people keep doing what they did, then they're going to get what they got. So, so we have to do a lot of change. And, and I'm reminded of a project I'm, I'm working with my team on at the moment that while mostly we have very, very slick processes that always work, there's always people in different mindsets or different skill sets or different experience that, that you have to work with. And, and for regardless of the best intentions and the best experience, sometimes you're just going to, you know, you're going to butt up against people that, that it doesn't work so well for. And you've really got to remain fluid and to be able to work with them and around them and, and help them to, to be every success because we don't want to break people. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And it's, it takes a lot of energy, um, 
you know, it's much easier if you're in your flow and everyone's going along, but that's just not right, you know. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm constantly reminded that we're here to learn um, and, mm-hmm. you know, and if we can carry people along the way. And one of, the, one of my favourite sayings in this area, and some people will find it confronting, but there's a wonderful saying from the military that is, you know, you carry your wounded, but you shoot the stragglers. And you can spend an enormous amount of time on people that just aren't going to come on board. And from a leadership perspective, some of the best advice I can give is help people that, that are already broken, you know, that they're wounded, carry them by all means, and, and you gr- gladly take the burden. But if people are digging in their heels and they definitely don't want to come and you can't make them come, like you'll spend all of your energy on people that don't want to go with you and you'll be, and you'll be denying the momentum you can give to the people that do want to go. So there comes a time when you've got to cut people off and, and it's a really, really important. You can't save everybody and you've got to, you know, everyone has a choice about which journey they want to go on. And that's a, that's a tough part of leadership, but if you, it's easy to fall over too far on the side of just being a bully and try and push everyone with you or, or alternatively um, try and carry everyone and, and, and not get nearly as far as you would have or could have. Um, because you're trying to carry people that just don't want to come along. So that that skill of being able to pick who's who's wounded, who's out in front, who's wounded, um, and who's a prisoner that doesn't want to be there, um, and you've got to let them go. So it's it's uh, interesting, and we all have our own journeys to to find on that. But that for me is one of the keys of uh, of really really good leadership. Yep, yeah. Thank you so much for sharing. Do you have any name like you know any specific leader that you always follow or admire, and why? Um, I, I'm look. I'm always inspired by. Um, I don't know him, um, but uh, I'm always inspired by Richard Branson. He he uh, he's just an impressive character, um, and uh, and and you know seems to manage the 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 political and media world mm-hmm. with, with integrity, um, mm-hmm. and uh, and that's a tough tough gig to do yes. in today's world. So uh, that's inspiring for me. Yes, yes. Thank you so much for sharing. And those are definitely really very valid points when it comes to the leadership. And the way you mentioned it is more about, you know, encouraging and inspiring the teams and the leadership by an example. So, uh, yeah. So thank you so much for sharing and really appreciate all your time and consideration being on the show. This is definitely something that, you know, different areas of expertise as of now, because uh, we never covered the supply chain expertise on the show. So you are the very first case and really happy to have you. (laughs) Thank you very much for having me. Thank you so much. Yeah. Bye for now. All right. So this is all about Tim Gray and the way he's managing to lead his area of expertise in manufacturing industries and supply chain. Hope you will learn some insights about those fields. And uh, before we close our today's episode, I'm going to have a closure quote as per our new tradition. Our today's closure quote is from Seth Godin, and it says, developing expertise or assets that are not easily copied is essential. Otherwise, you are just a middleman. So on that quote, we are closing today's episode. See you guys in the next episode. Until we meet, happy leading. Let's live together. Stay safe. Bye for now.